I thought it would reflect a bit on COVID. It's now been a little while, and the context is the greater environmental picture. There's lots of stuff out there on what to do, what not to do. I'm an expert in some parts of science, but not this part. I'm following their advice. I hope you do too. As it turns out, my mom lives outside the city. I live in Greenwich Village, Manhattan. My mom lives about 90 minutes, maybe two hours northwest of the city in a rural, semi-rural area. I've decided to stay out here possibly indefinitely, certainly for a couple months, depending on how things happen. And so I thought I'd share why and some thoughts on that and some thoughts on COVID so far, again, in the context of the environment overall. So why move out here? One, I mean, I enjoy spending time with my mom and I don't spend enough time with her. Also, I've read a few stories. There are a few stories that were the big ones for me. There's one that showed a, it's a chart over time of, in Wuhan, the number of reported cases in a different line, a different set of bars on the same chart, the number of actual cases, which no one knew at the time, you had to go back and look at the data afterward and reconstruct what was happening unknown to everyone. And so in Wuhan, they clamped down, I think when there's something like 400 people that were diagnosed. And at that point, they clamped down completely. That meant that the spread stopped in the unknown to them, but now known to us spread. If you look at the chart of the actual transmissions, that stopped right away. But what you actually observed in the rest was the number of people showing up and, and testing positive, And that kept going up for a long time. That's all we knew for a long time. What's the importance of this? Well, we're at that case in the United States of the number of reported cases is going up, except we're testing very little. And what's secret, or not, not secret, but what's not known to us is how many people actually have it, which if 400 then detected meant that there were thousands or maybe tens of thousands, I forget the exact numbers, but much greater undetected, the number undetected in the United States must be very high. And that means people are spreading it without realizing it. Could be you, could be me, not really sure. It seems to me clear that New York City, New York State, and the United States is woefully underprepared for something like this. That means government, corporations. I mean, people are still getting together in large groups. And that the people at an institutional level, we don't seem to have gotten it. I'm not blaming anyone. I'm not saying this is that we should have gotten it any differently because we simply don't have the experience that a place that has had SARS or MERS has had in leadership and in lots of things. There's no substitute for experience and we simply don't have the experience. We're getting that experience now. People don't get it. We're still behaving in ways that are, I think other nations that have had this experience aren't doing. And it seems to me that there's a big difference between the reaction in places that have had SARS or MERS and have experience and places that do not. And, it's very, and it seems to me that the places that are not are the places that are you're seeing growth happening a lot longer. I should say also, I'm not worried about my health. I'm 48. I'm not young. But I don't think I mean, it's possible I could die from it if I get it. It's possible I never get it. It's possible if I get it. I think the most likely case is I wouldn't really be that sick. But I could spread it. And I don't want to spread it. I could spread it without realizing it. I'm also concerned, not about my health, but at the system, the health system of the United States is nowhere near what Lombardy, Italy's is, as far as I know. If we don't have enough beds and there's a lot of people needing critical care, we could have a triage situation where people people die because there's not enough care for people. And so I want, I want to minimize that. I want to protect society as much as possible. If that means I can't do what I wanted to do, I think we've all agreed we're going to cut back on things. I think some people aren't cutting back as much as they ought to. The biggest advice I see is social distancing. So being less around people, spending more time at home, or in my case, spending time farther away from where lots of people are in order to minimize those interactions. So I think I'm doing what the advice is to do. I don't think I'm messing it up. 
so what could happen is it seems to me that we're more likely to end up worse off than Italy. That is to say, to have more people turned away from care, more people dying that would not die otherwise if we had slowed down the spread. But in the long term, I'm not sure how many, maybe everyone would get it anyway. I'm not sure. But it seems to me the best thing to do is to slow the spread as much as possible. I, you probably know this already. I talked to a friend of mine who's in medicine. She's a physician's assistant. And she said that she was getting advice from the hospital, but the advice she was getting seemed very low compared to what I would have expected for people in healthcare. I have a family member who's an MD, and he was also getting, it sounded like the problem, like any case could be solved, yes, on the individual level, but what could happen to the healthcare system, I'm not sure he was prepared how much he's going to be devoting his time to helping people on the ground and probably getting it himself because it's really difficult. It seems like healthcare people are getting that. I don't think people are getting how the system can be overloaded and what that does to everybody. Even if you get it and it's not a bad deal, you just have a small fever and it goes away, you're going to be affected nationwide and globally. The U.S. doesn't have the central authority that other places do. Is that good or bad in the long run? I don't know. But in this case, I don't think if the president says, everyone stay at home, that we can enforce that so well. I think we have a culture of some people are just going to be like, well, I feel like going out anyway. And I don't think we're going to be able to stop it as much as places like China or Korea or Taiwan have. It seems to me there's a pretty good chance, not 100%, but a pretty good chance the U.S. is going to face some pretty big problems. It looks like sometime around May, you can have millions of cases, like a, a large percentage of the population, I mean, a meaningful percentage of the United States could have, could come down with stuff and need urgent care. Then there are reasons why not to come out here. For one, my mom is in her 70s. My stepfather, her husband, is also. So they're at greater risk than the average person. It's possible I'm asymptomatic and I brought it out to her. Another big thing is that I've said many times here, accessibility is very important to me. If a solution for me is not doesn't work for everybody, I don't find that a, a solution that can work. A solution has to work for everyone or it's not a full solution. On the other hand, everyone who can do can slow the spread, I think should do what they can to slow the spread. And it's hard. How do I put this? My first reaction is it feels like what I'm doing is a privileged thing. I'm leaving the high density area for a low density area. But I can't actually put my finger to what the privilege is. Is it having a mom? I don't think so. I think everyone was born. Well, everyone was born to a mom. Is it that my mom is still alive? That doesn't feel like privilege. I mean, I have a decent relationship with her, but which isn't necessarily the case. But to have a mom and she lives nearby, that could be something that doesn't strike me as privilege. That strikes me as coincidence because many other situations, her living nearby doesn't really make that that much of a difference. I mean, she lived far away at some time. I mean, she was in Nebraska for a while when I was in New York. Is, am I more privileged because she moved here? I'm not sure. It, it's lucky to this situation. So that's something. But that's not, I mean, it could have been a different situation where her being nearby would hurt things. It's possible. I mean, if there was, I don't know, if a war broke out, then her being nearby might make it worse. It could have been better for her to be far away and I could move even farther away. Is it that I could afford to go somewhere else as opposed to staying at home? Well, actually, normally I couldn't afford a situation. I couldn't afford to go away like this. I mean, obviously, I think most people are facing this really tough. Like, how are you? How are we going to make finances work when we can't go out and meet people? I mean, I can't afford. I, I would not be able to afford this, except I kind of have to figure out how to. My my largest source of income last year was speaking engagement, public speaking, and speaking at corporations, and that's all being wiped off the calendar. I mean, I had all these deals that were about to close, and deals that had closed, and they're just not happening. And this doesn't feel particularly privileged to me that my greatest source of income is gone for an indefinite period of time. 
that gives me the freedom to go somewhere else. But that opportunity was just basically paying the bills. In any case, being able to re relocate, possibly for months, a lot of that results from hard work that I've done of pruning unnecessary things in my life, getting rid of stuff, but getting rid of relationships that weren't necessary. And anyone can do that. It doesn't cost anything to have less stuff, to get rid of something unnecessary and figure out how to make do with less. Another big thing, I don't have kids. That certainly enables moving around. I mean, it's funny with my sister. I remember the first time when she said, okay, we're heading out to the car now. And I was there in her house with three kids. That meant for me, heading out to go to the subway means I'm going to be on the subway in five minutes. For her, we're going to go out to the car means an hour later, if they're lucky, they're getting in the car. Not having kids means I'm a lot more flexible. But, well, a major factor in me not having kids is that I can't afford them. I mean, I could have made different life choices, which would make me able to do that. But I don't think it's particularly privileged not to be able to afford something and to live within my means. Having kids, that's not the only consideration is how much money I have in the bank or how much income I have. But if someone says that I have flexibility because I don't have kids and I don't have kids because I can't afford it, that, it, that I don't, maybe that's privilege, but it doesn't feel like it. It feels like the opposite of privilege, actually, not being able to afford something. But still, people I've talked to in the past couple of days have told me I'm privileged for something. Candidly, it does feel that way. I can't say I don't feel privileged in this, but I just can't put my finger on it. And I'm kind of, am I doing something that's special for me? Or is it something that, that others wouldn't possibly have access to? Or is it just coincidence that it worked out for me in this case, just because some people it works this way and some people doesn't? I mean, another situation, it could have worked out to my detriment for my mom to be nearby, I guess. Anyway, back to COVID. What made the case for me was seeing scientific models that what we're seeing with minimal testing implies far more cases that we haven't tested. And those far more cases that would show up had we tested more, they would imply far more people whom we would never test because they are not showing any signs. And that all tells me that the United States has an unknown, unseen, huge amount of people with COVID. Hopefully, most of them will have no problems. Some of them will be enough to overload the number of beds we have available. I'm probably, you know this already. The biggest problem, as I said, I think two days ago or two or three episodes ago, the biggest problem is, is if we do not learn from what happens. As I believe we've seen nations that have seen on a smaller scale with SARS, MERS, as tragic as any case where people are dying can be, they learn from it. And in this case, they've responded faster and more efficiently and more effectively. We simply have not gotten that experience. The most valuable thing we can do in this, of course, save every life that we can. Keep society together as best as possible. For people who are physically suffering or emotionally suffering, I hope to support and help all of them as much as possible. But the biggest thing is to learn lessons from this that we can apply, because I don't think this is going to take down all of humanity. But I do believe scientists have been predicting pandemics based on overpopulation and overtraveling, not for a little while, for generations. People have been predicting things like this would happen, and this is not the last of it. As bad as it may feel, as many people as get affected, as much as it affects economies and societies and cultures, there will be more. It will be more in the form of more lethal pandemics or more enduring pandemics in terms of floods and hurricanes and famine and wars over resources and climate refugees. We can expect more. We can't just talk about it and think that we're going to learn from our projections because there's more things that could possibly happen than we can prepare for. And what will happen, only what will happen will happen. We've got to learn from it. What happens here, hopefully the United States will learn. 
I believe the lesson, and history will tell, is to take these things more seriously, more quickly. But uh, we have to learn. I don't know what we'll learn. I believe the best course beyond this pandemic, in terms of longer term past this pandemic, is to implement globally what Thai people did, which is lowering the birth rate to something like one, one and a half children per woman on a global basis. This is not eugenics. This is not racist. This is everyone in the world, on average, having one to one and a half children per woman. What they did in Thailand, I think the opposite. I mean, you've heard me say this before, I hope. This is the opposite of what happened in of the one-child policy. This is not forced abortions, forced sterilizations, the government getting into, into the bedroom. This is a culture saying it's unhealthy for us as, as individuals and culture to keep having this many, this, to keep overpopulating. It doesn't work. We, people can't get employed. People, all sorts of problems. We can choose to joyfully, voluntarily, non-coercively, non-authoritarianly have fewer children and leading to greater prosperity for everyone more happiness, more opportunity for everyone. That's what I think is the big, biggest lesson that we can learn overall with these environmental stuff. Another big one, as you know, I haven't flown in, I start my fifth year of not flying in several days. I've talked to something like a thousand people about not flying. And of, say, the thousand people I've spoken to, approximately 998 of them have said, it's absolutely impossible for me not to fly. Not, I don't want to not fly, or I like flying. It's impossible for me not to fly. Suddenly, a lot of them are saying, I'm not flying. It's always been a matter of choice and imagination and motivation. It has never been a case of absolute, it's impossible for me not to fly. And now people are finding they cannot fly. Now, in this case, they also can't speak to each other in, or they can't get too close to other people in public in crowds. They have to not touch their face or we have to not touch our faces. We have to not go out in crowds. But in general, for acting on our environmental values, it's joyful. People don't get this. And I hope that's a lesson that people learn, that I believe that you are going to fly less than you would have. You're going to travel less. You're going to pollute less than you would have before. Now, some of the things you're not going to like, but I believe most of those are particular to a pandemic. If life returns to normal, when life returns to normal in some way, you can continue some of these things. You can touch, you'll be able to touch your face again. You'll be able to go out in public and, and, and be in large groups again. But you can also choose not to fly. I can tell you, actually, before I came out here, my mom was in the city, but then she texted me, Josh, we were supposed to meet tonight. This is a while ago. This is last week. But she said, look, I'm, I'm older. I'm at risk. I'm not going to come and visit you. My niece's bat mitzvah is coming up, and we're not sure what we're going to, is it going to happen or not? Probably not. We're not sure. We are getting closer as a family. Yes, we're seeing each other face-to-face -face less. And when we see each other, we can't touch as much as we would have, the hugs and so forth. But it brings us closer. And that's what we can learn from this. You don't have to get everything you want, anytime that you want. And that isn't what brings happiness. What brings happiness is sometimes struggling together and acting on your values, even when it's challenging.